welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. We're on to episode 102, and as promised, I'm doing a follow-up to episode 100's journey of tree to board with a bunch of the questions that were sent in by you guys on what I may have missed, or frankly, this is just kind of an email grab bag question because I got so many of them. I've done my best to try to pull them together. So lots of questions answered and thanks everybody for sending those in. And thanks especially, I got quite a few questions from the patrons or sponsors of this show. So thank you guys. If you want to be cool like them, you can go to patreon.com slash lumber update and look at the various tiers there. I'm actually mailing out the stickers for our featured species of the month, uh, Polonia, right now. So if you want to be one of the cool kids, you know where to go. I I did want to touch on an industry article that, uh, well, basically I'm doing it because it'll start kind of a flame war. One of my Hantel School students, Misha, sent this in to me, and it's a story of liquid trees. And uh, Serbia is doing this, specifically in Belgrade. They have these very um, dystopian looking, essentially benches, and they're growing algae inside these kind of plexiglass solar powered kind of like a bus stand imagine a bus stand that has like a billboard on the back of it but instead of a billboard you've got this like glowing green goop because the plexiglass container is actually lit from the inside and as it's growing um algae it is sequestering carbon you know bringing in uh carbon dioxide and producing oxygen and the numbers on this say that one of these bioreactors, they're called liquid three bioreactors. One of them is capable of replacing one 10 year old adult tree or uh, 200 square meters of lawn. So, you know, the first thing I say is, why are we reinventing the wheel? Just plant some more trees. But their response is, this is in like where areas where you can't plant trees. You can kind of, you know, shoehorn this in into heavily urban areas where you may not be able to get a tree to grow. Or like in the instance of Belgrade, the pollution is already so high that a lot of the trees are actually struggling, let alone trying to get a new tree to grow in that heavy uh, built up urban area. So this is kind of their step in the right direction. Um, Certainly, if you like steampunk, you'll think this may be more beautiful than a tree. I don't think it's more beautiful than a tree. Um, What's particularly interesting, if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, is read the comment section of this, where, of course, people say it's ridiculous and it takes more carbon to produce them than it sequesters. And certainly this is a tree, uh, or excuse me, this is a tree. This is an episode uh, podcast about the lumber industry. We obviously love trees here, so I'd rather see trees planted in case of this. But I do think it's an interesting just scientific or technological solution. And they do bring up a good point where there are certainly areas where it would be very difficult to shoehorn in a tree, let alone plant a bunch of trees and expect them to actually be able to survive. So if nothing else, to augment tree planting, it could be particularly interesting. But here again, you know, I'm a techno geek. I love to see this type of stuff. Um, Certainly it doesn't help shade anything, which doesn't prevent like the urban heat island, which is causing more energy expenditure. So it falls short in a lot of ways, but still it's an interesting use of technology where you could actually see a bioreactor being used as a carbon dioxide scrubber. So for those science fiction writers who want to think of a cool way to send a spaceship out into space and have a carbon dioxide scrubber, here's something that not only can scrub carbon dioxide, but it can be harvested for fertilizer in your you know, garden on the ship. So yes, if you, hadn't, if you couldn't tell already, I read a lot of science fiction. So thank you, Misha. That's an interesting, uh, interesting article. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat appalled by it, but at the same time, a little bit interested, fascinated by the abomination, I guess. So I do want to move on since I've got quite a few emails here, uh, wide ranging topics. Let's jump into this. This is uh, an email from Catherine, um, specifically in relation to this journey of a board idea. And she says, um, would you be able to speak about the scale of trees grown in farms? I'm curious about the journey and point of origin of a tree milled from something such as urban lumber versus a plantation or farm grown like two by eight at Home Depot, for instance. So I did touch a little bit of this on the episode, but I do think it's important to touch on the fact of trees and plantations and trees grown for crops, silviculture. That's essentially what silviculture means. There are a great deal of trees, lumber producing trees being grown in plantations. 
the most immediate thing we think of when we think of plantations is when a species that is not native is transplanted to another area in order to augment a species that may be under pressure. So for example, you know, mahogany was uh, dramatically harvested from Central America, from the Caribbean islands, from South America, and it was, you know, the total in vogue lumber during like the 18th century. Uh, people began realizing that it could be transplanted other places. And for instance, when the British still occupied the uh, Fijian islands, they began planting mahogany. And we're talking uh, almost actually more than a century ago now. And they'd actually discovered that genuine mahogany, Sweetina macrophylla, grows actually better in the Fijian islands than it did in like Cuba and Honduras and Brazil. And it was producing really, really nice lumber. Now, there were some problems, silviculturally speaking, at first, where they were being grown but not really attended to. So they were starting to branch and they were producing a lot of pin knot, in other words, less than perfect grade lumber, which is what, of course, was being harvested from the primary sources in South and Central America. So for a long time, the Fijian mahogany has always been viewed as somewhat less than. The uh, silvicultural management has improved quite a bit. Actually, I've seen quite a bit just in the last 20 years. And specifically in the last 15 years, as I personally at my job have been talking to uh, Fijian plantation owners, and I know we've actually bought from several of them and seen the quality improve over the last 10 years. That is a perfect example where a tree that was under pressure was able to be grown in another area. Uh, um, a teak is another example where uh, Burmese teak is being planted in Africa, being planted all across Indonesia. And while you will see subtle differences like the teak grown in Africa, again, this is genuine teak, Tectona grandis being grown in Africa. The soil chemistry is not the same, so it doesn't have the same uh, silica amounts. It's still, it can be kind of splotchy in color. Teak, as you may know, is already pretty splotchy in color because of the high amount of extractives and resin and oil in it anyway. The uh, reduce the silica amounts from the soil in Africa and it kind of gets replaced with a lot of those resins. So a lot of the less than kind of yacht grade or honey golden teak tends to be plantation grown. Spanish cedar is another example where you've got a species that's growing equally well in Africa and equally well in South America. Um, again, genuine mahogany is also growing in plantations in Florida here in the United States. And then the other aspect is we have um, domestic species, wherever, whatever your domestic is, wherever you are in the world, there are trees that are specifically being replanted. And essentially, if they are being planted with the sole purpose of eventually harvesting them for lumber, and forget about the form of that lumber, whether it's a two by four, two by eight, or fence posts, it is being, it will, the, the idea is it's being grown to specifically cut down and use the wood. It's not being grown for its fruit. It's not being grown for its shade or any of that type. The, the idea is that you will cut it down. That could also apply to pollarding or coppicing that you see where you lop the top off and make like, you know, fence posts and, 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 uh, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the, style of fencing the British use it for. Forgive me, British listeners, um, whatever that stuff's called, where you kind of weave these small poles in to create uh, fences, specifically for like sheep and, and cat or um, farm animals. It's going to come to me as soon as I finish recording this. But regardless, you're still kind of lopping off the top and then letting the tree regrow from its roots. A lot of times, some of the plantation trees can be grown the same way, dependent upon the species. But ultimately, they're planted like crops. And you will actually see them planted in these long rows. And you can stand and kind of line up with a row just like you would line up with, a you know, corn or something like that. These are uh, being managed specifically to fit a product. So if we use Catherine's example, where a two by four uh, grown to be, uh, excuse me, a two by eight, uh, a tree grown to be a two by eight. Well, a two by eight is an interesting example because you're gonna be getting several two by eights out of that tree. In fact, more than likely, what you'll be doing is growing that tree in order to get your two by 12s, two by 10s, and two by eights from it. And you'll be growing it just enough to probably get two two by 12s 
right out of the center, like either side of the pith, or actually if you look at some of the two by 12s at your typical big box store, some of them have the pith in it. So maybe they're getting three two by 12s, one right smack through the middle of the pith and one uh, uh, one on each side of the pith. So maybe you got three two by 12s. As you go outward in the log, then maybe you're getting a two by eight and another, or excuse me, a two by 10 and another two by 10. And then as you go further out on the, on the log, you're getting a two by eight and a two by eight, and then maybe a two by six and a two by six out of there, or maybe another two by four. I've said this in the past, a lot of time two by fours are grown specifically to be two by fours. Obviously there's a lot more demand for two by fours than sixes, eights, tens, twelves. So the tree will be grown to be about five to six inches in diameter. And then it's cut down, split in half down the middle on the pith, and you're essentially getting two two by fours out of that tree. Regardless, the tree is grown to a certain point, a certain diameter, a certain age, and it is harvested at that point specific for that purpose. That's one side of things, and it's typical you find that in the softwood world. In the hardwood world, essentially, you're growing more about the management of the forest and the uh, pr promoting the most effective tree growth, the most efficient tree growth, and you do have in mind what your market demand is. Hardwoods are generally in North America graded around the North, uh, North American Hardwood Lumber Association's grades. And there are market demands for six to eight inch wide boards. Occasionally there are demands for eight and wider, but that will also depend upon species. Many species don't really have much of demand for eight and wider, and they do just fine with six inches. Some species just don't do real well. Or they take too long to produce eight and wider lumber, and the market has pretty much adjusted for four, five, and six inch lumber. Some species are relegated to be flooring, uh, flooring woods, and flooring rarely looks for six inches and wider, and it's usually number two common. So the trees can be grown, can be pruned. If you're not really worried about knots and things like that, you don't necessarily have to prune those branches right away. You may prune them uh, in order to foster like upward and outward growth of the tree, but you're not pruning them in order to prevent knots from showing up and affecting the clear grade of your lumber. So more and more, the hardwoods and the lumber that we're harvesting today is grown very much like a plantation. Now, there are other silvicultural methods that I've talked about in other episodes where you are harvesting one tree and keeping the feeder or seed trees within its drip line to let them grow up in the hole put in the canopy. Sometimes you're doing selective clear cutting. Sometimes there is clear cutting. Sometimes you're using shelter wood techniques in order to continue to grow trees within a, quote, wild forest environment. Those are not like clear cut and planted in rows like you might expect of normal crops, but in some ways it's still being grown as cropland, but you're kind of letting nature do most of the nurturing and fostering and curating and all of the other network like the fungal network and ribosomes and all that stuff that not only feed the trees, but uh, also the, the mushrooms and things that benefit from the trees themselves, you're kind of letting that network foster the growth of these trees. That can still be said if managed properly. Let's, let me rephrase that. If managed sustainably, it is still silviculture. It is still essentially managing a, an acreage of forest like you would a plantation. So there are certainly uh, shades of gray, you know, from everything planted exactly in rows to a normal forest that is following some sort of cutting rotation to it in order to foster either shade tolerant trees or non-shade tolerant trees or maybe specific species of trees, et cetera, et cetera. I do think as you move into more of the softwoods and more of that specific purpose-built two by construction lumber, that's where you're seeing a lot more of the trees planted in rows because a lot of times clear cutting can be the solution. And really that's more of a selective clear cutting where they're taking a smaller area, clearing it, and then replanting or broadcast seeding and letting them grow up um, at that point. Some hardwoods you will certainly see, uh, some of the faster growing ones you will see planted in rows. Poplar, I've, I've ride my bike by a poplar plantation um, all the time. And it's real funny because from like an angle as I'm approaching it at an angle, it's just this really dense 
section of forest, but it's particularly striking because all of the trees are arrow straight and there are no low branches. You can tell that someone has come in and managed this in order to create a nice long central bowl to produce nice clear lumber. But as I come abreast with it and I start to come even with it, I can kind of look directly to my left as I'm riding by and I can start to see the rows kind of flashing by because you're starting to see where they're lining up. It's really kind of cool. When you when you run across a plantation that's grown like that, it's very, very obvious. The first thing you notice is just how straight and kind of how orderly the whole forest looks. And you don't have a lot of little saplings popping up here and there. Everything is essentially around the same age. Now, a lot of instances, it may be the same species. More and more, we're trying to avoid that kind of monospecies forest. So you're seeing different kinds of species, but they're all kind of planted around the same time and growing at the same rate. So it looks very nice and neat and orderly. Um, so, but anyway, that's, those are going to be harvested on a very strict kind of rotation schedule based upon what their eventual goal will be. Like Catherine said, you're meant to be a two by eight one day. You're meant to be just two by construction lumber one day. <clears throat> or with a lot of like black locust plantations now that are specifically grown as fence posts because black locust does incredibly well in ground contact. You find that most of these trees are grown to be about three inches in diameter. They're cut down, the bark is shaved off, and they're sold as fence posts. And that's specifically what you see that forest. They get, you know, however many years it takes for a black locust tree to grow to be about three inches in diameter, maybe four inches in diameter. That's how old that forest is. And I don't honestly know what the civil cultural method is there. More than likely, it may be clear cut. Um, or there's going to be another civil cultural method, like a selective clear cut that is meant to promote uh, single age stands of trees. Um, yeah, again, it all depends upon that. Whereas, you know, and, and the journey there is it's grown up, it's fostered, it's, you know, sung to and spoken sweetly to and pruned uh, very much like you would an orchard pruned to specifically produce more fruit. And then it's cut down when it reaches its maturity. Whatever that individual product is, it's loaded onto a truck, it's shipped off to a sawmill, it's sawn into boards, and it's then sold, well, dried somewhere along the way, and then it's sold for whatever that intended purpose is. Generally, you're looking at much larger commercial operations in that particular instance. First, the journey of an urban lumber project, well, that is not really being grown for necessarily grown for lumber. It's being grown for shade. It's being grown for ornamentation. Uh, it's being grown because it looks pretty, um, mainly because of shade in order to kind of uh, uh, reduce the urban heat island. Um, you know, uh, certainly for cleaning the air. I mean, the, the, the solution to global warming is plant more trees. I mean, Mother Nature figured it out. It's just a matter of finding the place to plant those trees. And, and frankly, a well-managed urban silvicultural plan will take into account the species that will work best, the species that will last the longest in that like little strip between the street and the sidewalk. You know, which trees are going to disrupt the sidewalk with the roots, which trees are going to be hanging low and possibly get in the way of trucks or maybe get in the way of power lines. So you plant a tree that may grow up faster and bloom out above power lines or bloom out above uh, the traffic so that it's not getting in the way of those things and it can kind of do its thing. These are all the things that get thought about, but ultimately it's not really being planted in order to say, well, in 40 years, that's going to make some nice, you know, four quarter and eight quarter lumber. The good news is, is we're starting to recognize that it can make good four quarter and eight quarter lumber instead of just being felled and chipped and mulched. There actually is a market now developing for this, but it is much more, I like to think of it like how I build furniture. You know, I work for a company that has an architectural millwork house that builds a lot of furniture. And when I walk the factory floor there and see how a sideboard is built, and then when I come home and go into my garage with my hand planes and my hand saws and see how I build a sideboard, it's a very different process. You know, um, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm the one who's doing everything from one, you know, from the, the step one of the sideboard all the way through to applying the finish. And I'm attacking it kind of joint by joint or drawer by drawer. Whereas in a large commercial um, setup, 
some guy's going to mill the lumber into parts and then another guy or a CNC is going to maybe cut those parts out. And then the drawers might be made by someone in another factory altogether who specialize in making drawers. And it's all kind of pulled together and maybe assembled piece by piece by piece and then shipped off into another room where a different guy spray finishes it. Same type of thing could be said here in an urban lumber environment. There's a guy who fells it. Now, maybe that guy then sold it to another guy who has a sawmill, but more and more I'm seeing the tree specialists buying sawmills because they recognize there is another thing we can do with this lumber. So they're felling the tree. They're sawing it into boards. A lot of them now are buying kilns and drying it. And then they're selling it either direct to consumer or maybe they've got another customer, another lumberyard that's looking to buy it. But it's much more kind of a grassroots type setup. Essentially, they're following the same journey where they're growing up somewhere. They're being felled. They're being loaded onto a truck or loaded onto a mobile sawmill. Um, but it's much more hyper-local from an urban perspective. It's generally staying within the same zip code as it's being felled, sawn, dried, and ready for sale. Whereas the plantation... Who knows how many zip codes, how many state boundaries, how many country boundaries that may cross in order to finally end up on the rack ready for you to buy. It's a very cool question, Catherine, and I like definitely how we get to hit really those two extremes from carefully curated plantation forest to tree that grew in somebody's yard that had to come down for one reason or another. Uh, let's move on to another question here. Alex has a question about the margins in the lumber industry. He says, I'm curious if businesses in the lumber industry, um, if they aren't shutting their doors, what are they doing to stay afloat? Do you think mergers and acquisitions for more conglomerates and vertical or horizontally integrated businesses will become more common for survival? So uh, shorter answer, short answer is no. I don't think that's going to happen. I do think in the softwood side of things, the construction lumber side of things, the conglomerates are already there and they pretty much already own that business and there's really no competing with them. Um, it's just very, very difficult to do. And honestly, I still feel that the growing methods that big companies um, use to produce two by fours and two by eights, et cetera, I think they've kind of figured it out. And so far, they're showing a very consistently sustainable way of producing this material. So in my mind, it's not really worth competing against that. Now, there may be people who don't like big corporations and think, I wish some little guy would get into that. I don't know whether I want the little guys in this business. I think the little guys, the young entrepreneurs and things like that, necessarily have to be young, just to say the entrepreneurs, will better serve the market in these kind of like the sawmills I've been talking to, the urban sawyers and things like that, that's where I want them to go. And I think that is the future. And I'm sure I've said this on a number of times, even though it kind of flies in the face with what I do day to day for a large lumber wholesaler, these little guys are producing more unique, actually you can't modify unique, that's a pet peeve of mine. They're producing unique products. They're producing hyper-local products. And I think what businesses are doing in order to compete to survive when margins are tight is they are increasing the size of the pie, right? The pie is a certain size. And if you've got to slice out a piece of that pie for overhead and slice out a piece of the pie for selling to a reseller and you've only got so much pie left, these guys are flipping the script and they're harvesting unique materials that is thereby increasing the size of the pie. More and more of them are vertically integrating and they're buying kilns, but they're changing things by using vacuum kilns or RF vacuum kilns, drying in smaller quantities, but producing really more stable, more equally dry, more homogenized dryness materials, which in a lot of ways produces a better product over a huge steam-driven dehumidification kiln that really can't, can't do that, can't draw vacuum well efficiently, unless you're NASA, over a giant, giant, you know, interior square footage space. These guys are filling in the blanks where the larger conglomerates just can't survive because they are about turnover. They are about volume. And the market is starting to turn not away from volume. Volume is a necessary kind of, for lack of a better term, evil. I hate to call it an evil. It's just necessary. But the feature walls, the one special room with a wide plank character grade floor, you know, the one room where you've got a, a millwork ceiling that's made out of a locally harvested tree, 
um, your kitchen or maybe the panels in your kitchen cabinets. The rails and styles are made out of, you know, plantation grown cherry, but the door panels are made out of a cherry tree or a cherry burl that came down down the street. That's embracing not only the conglomerate producing the rails and styles and maybe the large architecture millwork house whose CNC cut out those rails and styles, but someone else sawed the cherry burl and produce the panels, maybe even routed a raised profile on those panels, certainly dried the panels and maybe supplied it to the millwork house to slot into the rails and styles. That synergy between the little guy and the big guy, I think is where things are heading. They both need to be there in the business. Now I've got a, uh, an interview that I've already recorded that will be coming up in a future episode of a lumber yard that has done a lot of this. They realized the margins were changing so they increased the size of the pie by increasing their level of service, by increasing their capabilities. And I don't mean increasing by growing bigger and faster and stronger. It was adding to the services they can do, looking for the value adds where their specific little local zip code market needed them. They changed their service offering and now they're able to charge more. And not that they're gouging the customer, they're providing a better service. So um, look for that in the next coming episodes. I'm not gonna spoil anything more than that because we talk about this a lot during the interview. It's a matter of finding out what your market needs. And when you are a little guy servicing a single zip code or a couple of zip codes, you can hyper-focus that and you can really custom tailor your services. That's what I'm seeing more and more. And to some extent, some same color of that, I'm seeing even the conglomerates that are starting to subdivide into specific business units that may do a better job of the softwood things. And maybe this business unit does a better job of, of the veneer and plywood side of things. And they're giving those business units more autonomy to structure their business, structure their process, structure their standard operating procedure around what's gonna suit that particular business unit goal, their particular market segment goal. That I think is, the bigger thing. And I think, frankly, the more exciting thing, the whole buy local support small business thing has really taken off in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years. And the same thing is happening in the lumber business. And that's awesome because we want that village economy, that local Sawyer, that local tree arborist, lumberjack, Sawyer, and lumber yard to provide that unique material that like a company like the one I work for cannot do that because we're servicing a nationwide customer. We're buying from all over the globe. We're fitting, uh, filling the large commercial projects. And occasionally when we do get that unique, that customer looking for something unique, what do we do? We farm it out to the little guy. So there's room for both of us to play there, and both of us have to handle our margins a little bit differently. Now, unfortunately, Alex, there are a lot of businesses who are closing their doors. The crazy part is, is I know more businesses who are closing their doors not because they can't cut it anymore, but because they're just, they're tired. They maybe don't have someone to carry it on. It becomes more of a labor shortage at that point. It's a family-run business, and maybe the the kids have grown up, the grandkids have grown up, and eventually the great-grandkids just weren't interested in the lumber business, and they became doctors or they became welders or mechanics somewhere else, and there's no one to really hand the business on to. And you know they were looking for that that entrepreneur, that young, ambitious person to come in that they could train them up and teach them the business, and they weren't able to find them. And honestly, there are so many things competing for attention when it comes to choosing a career. The lumber industry is struggling hard. There's a lot of people in the trades who are struggling, and there's just not the people there to take it over. So when the, the owner of the business is now 75, 78 years old, and he or she can't find someone to take over the business, and you know the margins are getting thinner, and they're kind of skating by, and they could probably make it last another 10, 15 years, and if they could just find the right person to get excited about it, the business could flourish again, but they just get tired. They can't find anybody. The labor pool's not there, and they just say, you know what? We had a good run. We're gonna close. I know, I would say probably 70% of the sawmills I know closing, that's the story they're telling. Not that they couldn't cut it. In fact, it was just the opposite. Of course, we saw the boom of the lumber industry during COVID, but at the same time, there is that buy local, that buy unique, that support artisans that really took off and it started to help a lot of these small sawmills. So, you know, I guess that's a bittersweet story. 
it's cool though they're not closing because they couldn't cut it, but it's kind of sad that you know the labor pool can't support them and there's less interest in maybe running a sawmill or running a lumber business to keep it going. <clears throat> uh, next question. This is actually from Misha who sent in the, the green goop uh, question from uh, Serbia. He says, uh, how do boards get selected um, to who gets to buy them? For example, boards that I as a consumer um, can buy versus the boards that pro shops can buy versus the architects, etc. Now, the first thing I'll say is in most instances, the architects are not actually buying the lumber. In most instances, there are certainly some architects that that are, uh, but for the most part, the architects are doing the design and then they're having a contractor, a general contractor, a builder, actually the architect specifies, I want this species or I want this molding profile or I want this look, I want this finish, you know, this finished product, which gives me this look and maybe doesn't even know what the species of lumber is under that because that is specced within the product that architect is specifying and somebody else is going out and buying it. Now, there are certainly large architecture firms that also have development arms where um, technically the architect's still not buying it, but they're passing it down the hall to an engineer or to an actual builder that's doing that type of work. My brother works for a company like this that has literally from stem to stern, from architects all the way down to property managers to do everything in-house. But those architects and a lot of businesses that produce lumber or produce wood products want to talk to those architects because they want their products specified. That's the way to kind of get your foot in the door to get that project and not having to bid on it. You know, you've gotten that, you've landed that project before it ever landed in the hands of the builder or the GC, and you don't have to compete anymore. The architect has said, that's the guy I want. That's the product I want. And certainly the margins are much, much better at that point. The difference there, even though the architect isn't buying it, the architect is getting courted. You know, we, the wood product manufacturer, the door manufacturer, the lumber supplier, we want to kind of find that blue ocean scenario where there's less competition, where maybe we can make a higher margin because we're working upstream further. So we're going and we're courting those architects. We're trying to get them to specify our products. So we're taking our bestest, brightest, coolest, cleanest, you know, fastest, most Bluetooth capable, laser, you know, generated AI bespoke, favorite buzzword here, that's the product that we're presenting to them. Um, there's a double-edged sword there, which I'll get to in just a second. So those architects are definitely seeing the cream of the crop because that's the business that we want. The double-edged sword is you take the most beautiful piece of cherry and that architect says, okay, I want it all to look like that. Well, cherry <laughs> is not that consistent from board to board. It's got gum pockets. It's got sapwood. It's got, frankly, kind of squirrely grain in very soft, punky sections that show up as blotch or, you know, one man's blotch is another man's figure. And when you take that single sample and you blow that up into, you know, an 8,000 square foot floor and deck, well, it doesn't quite look the same. And that's that double-edged sword. But I also think this is where more and more architects are starting to embrace the, the defects. It's such a terrible word. The character that comes from organic. There's a whole design style coined organic modern, where we're taking clean lines, modern lines, and embracing the natural character of organic products like wood. Um, no more plastics, no more concrete, you know, that stuff. We're going with the organic look. So those architects are definitely seeing the cream of the crop. And therefore the builders that those architects are naming are seeing the cream of the crop as well because they're going and looking at who was specified on the plans and buying it from them. So let's go all the way back to the sawmill um, or let's say the concession owner. That concession owner, that silviculturalist, is managing this stand of trees, and they pretty much know what they have. They also know what their rotation's like. They know what their harvest rate is going to be like. They know how many trees they're going to be able to fell this year, like this winter, and therefore how many logs they're going to produce that they can either sell to a sawmill or that they can cart down the road to their own sawmill. They also, having managed that forest, have an idea of the grade that they're getting. Now, this is a real art. I mean, certainly you can tell a lot by looking at the bark of a tree, especially if you really know that species well, and especially if you have managed that tree, you know, over multiple decades, you know how clear it's going to be inside. You know how that tree grows. So you can look at that and go, 
that's a pretty cherry tree. Like that's a veneer grade tree. And looking at how uniform the bark is and how straight and uniform the bowl is, that's a veneer grade tree. So when I fell that tree and I look at my concession management schedule and go, that tree's going to be ready for felling in eight years. When I fell that tree in eight years, I'm marking that as a veneer grade log. So I'm going to fell it and I'm not going to saw it. Instead, I'm going to sell that to a person that peels veneer. And for a cherry tree, that's going to make the most sense probably to rotary peel that. Maybe you might slice it, guillotine slice it in order to produce sequence matched or rift grain. The higher margin would be in creating a rift and sequence matched plywood panel versus a rotary plywood panel. But what you'll do is probably sequence match part of it to get that super, super high grade, $180 to $300 sheet cherry hardwood panel. And then as you get to like the inner part, maybe the, the, the inner half of the tree where your flitches are not going to be that wide, then you're going to peel it. You're going to rotary cut the rest of it. And you'll use that as your B face or your C face on that same panel. So you've got an A, A plus rift sequence match face on the front and then a rotary cut clear face on the back to give you an AB or possibly an AC panel that you can offer you know, to somebody who's looking for a one-face product that you can sell for $180 a sheet instead of $300 a sheet for that AA panel. Um, that certainly is decided while that tree is growing that that's going to be a veneer log. And you, the consumer, you're never going to see that unless, of course, you go to a plywood supplier and you buy that you know, A plus rift sequence matched or perfectly 100% clear all heart rotary peeled plywood. That's the only way you're going to see that. But back to the architects, back to the builders who maybe want our building, you know, a new office building and they want that lobby to be paneled and rift um, cherry. Well, that that's the job for plywood. And they have just specified that the entire lobby needs to be perfectly vertical grain rift cherry panels. Well, however many panels that is, that's a whole lot. So that builder is going to, or that architect is hopefully going to spec somebody who can handle that, or the builder is going to be the builder's job to go find someone who can handle that. And that's going to be a big order. That's probably going to take time to develop. So the plywood manufacturer that's going to do that, they're going to say, okay, I'm going to need eight months to develop that. I'm going to need eight months to generate, to produce all of those panels. They're going to go to their veneer suppliers. They're going to go to their log buyers and say, I have, I need 8,000 square feet to fill. I'm going to need, they know, they're going to know how many logs they need to do that. So they're going to start buying those logs right away. And that goes all the way back to that concession owner who knows in that acre of forest, I've got X trees ready for harvest. One of them is a veneer log they're going to list that on their inventory as a veneer log. The veneer buyers who are talking to 20 different sawmills maybe, they're saying, hey, I've got a big order for some veneer. What do you have in veneer logs? Well, I've got one that's due for felling you know, in March and I've got one that's due for felling next year. And they have that kind of inventory that they're building up, that network that they know they're buying from. So essentially the consumer never sees that stuff because that tree that's still growing in the forest that's not gonna be felled for three years, it's essentially already spoken for. It's essentially already been purchased because the quality that silviculturalist is looking at it going, this is going to produce a high quality. Now, certainly you never really know until you crack open the log, but you can get pretty close. And those that specialize in veneer, no, that's one extreme. Then you've got other examples where, you know, that's not going to be a veneer log. That's going to turn into some lumber. I can estimate the board footage I'll get just based upon the size and the diameter of the tree. And that same idea of knowing what's in the forest, knowing what's going to be harvested, will give you an idea of what you can saw. But then there's also the sawyers that don't actually manage a forest. They're buying logs. We'll go to any sawmill, and the one thing they have is a log yard. And there's generally filled with logs. You know, and it's like, man, when are they going to saw all those logs? Well, in many instances, they're leaving those logs to be sawn until they have a specific demand for them. But they've gone and they've bought, they've gone to a, a concession owner and that concession owner knows what they're harvesting. They know when they're going to cut and they have an inventory and they say, okay, I've got X number of maples, X number of cherries. They're all this many years old because they're harvesting on a specific, maybe 60 year rotation, 80 year rotation, depends upon the species, depends upon the region, but they know full well what's there. As you would expect, like this is your investment. This is your job. You don't just 
Oh, I don't know. I don't know how many trees I have out there. Hell no, you don't run a business that way. These people know exactly how many trees they have and when they are available. So the sawmills are buying or the concession owner saying, look, I'm about to harvest these 40 logs. Here's what I'm going to have. The sawmill is being opportunistic and saying, oh, I know there's a market for that. I'm going to buy those white oak logs. I'm going to buy those cherry logs. Now, they're not buying veneer grade logs because they probably don't specialize in that. In fact, I know they don't specialize in that, but they do know that, hey, I move a lot of white oak or cherry's kind of dead right now. Maple, well, the price is dropping on that. You know, if he's going to give me a good deal on the maple, maybe I'll buy a couple of them so that he gives me a deal on these walnut logs because walnut's super hot right now, you know, and you can go in and you can try to buy all the walnut logs from the guy and he's going to say, sure, you can have all my walnut logs, but I want you to take some of this maple that I can't move over here as well. And you're kind of wheeling and dealing and making some decisions. So the sawmill owner has the log yard. And just like the concession owner knows what's growing, the sawmill owner knows what those logs are in their yard. They know kind of the sizes. They've had a log scaler gone gone out to determine their inventory. And I've talked about this with log scaling before. That's part of your, your company's worth. Those logs are worth a certain amount you know, based on what that log scaler has told you. Whether you've had a scaler come in or you've done it yourself, you have an idea of what's out there. So then let's go downstream. You've got that buyer that say the buyer works for a company like the one where I work for. And they're saying, look, we're getting a lot of demand for Rift White Oak. We're getting a lot of demand for Walnut. Um, What do you got? Like, I need to buy more Walnut. Well, I've got, you know, four logs over here. You know, oh, I knew you were coming. I've actually just sawn three walnut logs. They're in my kiln right now. Um, Or I've just sawn them. You can buy them green at X price. Or if you want me to dry them, they'll be available in six weeks. You know, all of this is near inventory, ready to move inventory, not quite ready, still being dried or still on stick. That type of thing is all a matter of managing that supply chain. So, as far as who gets to buy it, like the further you go upstream, the closer you get to the forest, the more options you're going to have. But the further you go upstream, the further you move away from individual boards. You know, if you're talking to a landowner, you're buying logs. In many instances, you're buying multiple logs. You're buying a harvest sometimes. You know, I've got this amount of trees. I know that I'm felling 40 trees in this harvest I need to move, like I'm as a, as a forest owner, I don't have a log yard. So if I fell these trees and I don't have a buyer for them, I don't have anything to do with them. So if I don't have a buyer, I'm not going to fell that tree. I'm going to wait another year to fell that tree. So they're only felling what they have a demand for because someone has come and bought the entire harvest or they've gone to the sawmills and say, I've got 40 trees coming up for harvest. I'll take 10. Okay. He goes down the street and talks to Bill. Bill takes another 10. He goes to his next guy in his network and Steve takes 20 of them. So eventually he gets to the point where he sold the 40 logs in his harvest. So he doesn't need to talk to anybody. So you can go talk to him and he's like, look, I've already sold the 40 logs in my harvest. I'm harvesting 40 logs this year. I've already sold them. So if you want to buy some logs, you got to come talk to me next year. You know, here's what I've got next year, but you're still going to have to buy a whole log at minimum. More than likely though, depending on how big the operation is, this guy's looking to sell multiple logs. He wants to clear all 40 of his logs. So it gets a little bit harder when you're only buying a single log. But again, how many of us are buying a whole log? So then, well, I can't buy a whole log. So I'm going to go down to a sawmill. I'm going to talk to a sawmill. Well, that sawmill has sawn up a bunch of logs. Again, they've got a log yard. They're able to maintain that near inventory of logs. And they're trying to keep them in log form because that's going to prevent them from, from, you know, starting to age prematurely, you know, they're safer while still got the bark on it and they can keep the moisture high and they're not going to really have to worry about caring and feeding or maintaining or keeping clean or anything like that. So they're going to do their best to saw on demand or more importantly, many of these sawmills are now running kilns. So they're going to wait until when I saw this log, I can then put it in the air dry yard. Um, I can move stuff from the air dried yard into the kiln or some species I want to go right into the kiln. I've talked about this in the past with holly. You don't want that sitting around. You fell it, saw it, stick it in the kiln on the same day if you can. So if you've got somebody that is buying a holly log, you know, I'm going to keep that. I want to bring that in and saw it right away. So I need to make sure I've got room in my kiln or a buyer with a kiln who's ready to come take it as soon as I saw it. These are all the things that you have to manage. And if you're talking to a sawmill, you need to be prepared to compete with people who are ready to come in and buy entire truckloads of material. These sawmills generally are not selling 
you know, one and two boards. If they do, it's because they have increased the size of the pie, increased their value add, as I talked about in the last question, and they've opened a retail shop. So now they can saw not just in time, but they can saw opportunistically and they can stock their own shelves or they can fill their kiln maybe 80% and reserve 20% of that kiln for their own stock that they can then sell to the consumer. So you will get lucky if you're, if you know there's a sawmill in the area and you call them and they do have a showroom, they are pulling some stuff aside and you generally can get some nice material. At the same time, though, if they're producing, like if this is a mill that generally produces FAS material in a certain species, the big guys know it. They know that guy's there. And generally, the the sawmill owner can move material faster. And maybe they're going to keep aside 100, 200, maybe 500 board feet of that nice stuff to maybe sell locally. If they have a if they have a customer base if they have a market demand for it if they've never reached out to the individual consumer to the individual wood, woodworker and that woodworker doesn't even know they're there they don't have a customer base so their material sits there the turn rate is forever slow and they're essentially losing money on it so it it is kind of a catch 22 you need to kind of build that customer base but if they've had enough people wandering in and they've had to turn away people saying hey we're wholesale only you know well i mean if if what if we could help you, what would you be looking for? Okay, well, Joe, I had six guys come in this week who were looking to buy, you know, 100 board feet or 25 board feet. It's like, all right. So if they bought 25 board feet, they might be back in a month to buy another 25 board feet. Okay, well, Joe, why don't we take 500 board feet? 500 board feet, it's not that much. We'll put on some, on some racks. And then the next time this guy comes in, we can service him. Well, maybe I've now captured a customer. So I've got that one customer. Maybe that guy's going to come back. Maybe he'll tell his friends. Or maybe I'm truly entrepreneurial and I attend a local woodworking guild meeting, go to the local club and say, hey guys, I run a sawmill. I'm just starting a retail business. I want you to know we're here. You know, do the little marketing thing. We'll offer you a discount code if you come in and you say whatever. And that you're creating that customer base. So now you've got that local sawmill that is setting aside some good quality stuff. And that's how you can get to buy it. Ultimately, Misha, the answer to this question is, how does it get selected and who gets to buy it? It so heavily depends on the species, what the market demand is. Ultimately, you would much rather sell your entire inventory to one guy, you know, take one check, put it on one truck and be done. Um, Now you're going to make probably less margin, but you're going to take care of, maybe you just sold your entire business or your entire stock and one go, and you can go to Bermuda for the next six months. <laughs> you know, certainly that would be easier if you could just have one customer and be done. And that customer comes back next year, you sell them all your stuff, and then you, you know, you harvest and grow and build more stuff for that next customer to come back the next year. But the, we know that doesn't work that way. Ultimately, though, the guys that can throw around the most, that can buy the largest volumes are going to get the pick of things. They're going to get to dictate more than anything. And and more often than not, they're the ones that are determining what that sawmill, what logs they buy, when they saw those logs, et cetera. So ultimately, as an individual consumer, as a weekend woodworker who's maybe buying one or two boards, you're always kind of at the bottom of the heap there. The saving grace to this is there are retail yards that specialize in high quality figured maple or flame mahogany or good quality Appalachian cherry. And those people are buying by the truckload or close to the truckload from the sawyers that could produce that material. And then they are selling it to the consumer. So I know in my area, I'm pretty blessed with the fact that I have one, two, five different what I would consider high quality lumber yards within a two hour drive. Um, and I can go and buy that good quality stuff. Now it is expensive. It's quite expensive because again, refer back to episode 100, all the hands that have touched it along the way um, have increased that cost pretty dramatically. So you can, as a consumer these days, pretty much get access to everything. You just have to recognize that you're going to end up paying for it um, the smaller and smaller volume that you buy. Um, Robert had reached out to me on Instagram and he was struggling a little bit with board footage and he was asking me if like, what is, what, what do the pros use as far as a board foot calculator? And, um, I think he was looking for like an app or, you know, if there was a specific board foot calculator, literal calculator out there. Although these days isn't it pretty much just an app. And I kind of shattered his illusions a little bit by saying, look, the pros 
don't use anything. Like they're not doing the calculations in their head, you know, and multiplying and dividing by 144 and all that. They have rules of thumb that they follow. And the important thing is when you're dealing with larger packs, it's actually pretty easy to estimate board footage, but we also have board foot rules. If you've never seen a board foot rule, it's this long kind of flimsy looking piece of wood with like a steel spike on the end, and it's got different marks on it, three different columns. It's got two sides to it. Each side has three columns that denote a certain length, you know, an eight, 10 and 12 foot length, or excuse me, what is it? Eight, 12 and 18 on one side and 10, 14 and 16. I could be wrong. I might be getting those numbers wrong, but regardless, there were three columns on one side with a number at the top that denotes how long the board is. And then those grades, you hold that, that rule across the board and you measure out a six inch wide board. You know that board is eight feet long. You look at the number in the eight column and now you know that it's you know six board feet. That's for a four quarter board. If it's an eight quarter board, you find that number that says four, you multiply it by two, it's eight board feet. If it's a five quarter board, you multiply by 1.25. If it's a six quarter board, you multiply by 1.5. You very quickly can do that math and estimate. Now imagine if you're talking about a pack of lumber. It's four quarter lumber. Well, that doesn't really matter because you're estimating the volume of the entire pack. Well, that you'll notice that the packs of lumber at most lumber yards are pretty uniform. They tend to all be about 36 inches wide, um, or maybe 48 inches wide. And they tend to be stacked um, in either set dimensions, like 12 or 24 inches or 36 inches high, or they are put in very even rows. Um, It's rare that you'll find three rows of lumber. It'll be two rows of lumber. um, Or the pack will be reduced in width to produce four rows of lumber, because it's much easier to quickly multiply those numbers. So the way that I look at it is... The packs are usually easily divisible numbers, 36 or 48 inches wide, generally the same thing on the height. So if you have um, a 36 inch wide pack and well, let me look at it this way. Let's go back because FAS says that um, the minimum cutting size is a six inch wide by eight foot board. Well, if you do the math on a four quarter board, that's four board feet. You know, if one board foot is a one by one or one by 12 by 12, one inch thick, 12 inches wide, 12 inches long, a six inch wide board is going to be half of that, right? Six is half of 12. So a six by 12 board is going to be half a board foot. A six by 24 board is one board foot. So basically for every foot, you've got a half a board foot. So a six by eight, it's eight feet long. Half of eight is four. A six by eight, four quarter board is four board feet. So there's your rule of thumb. So if you can divide by six and your packs are divisible by six, so you've got a 36 inch pack, take that 36 inch pack, divide by six, multiply that by say, um, well, wait a minute, let's just say we've got a 36 inch pack. It's six times um, four board feet. So four, we know that a six inch wide board, eight feet long is four board feet. So six times four is 24. So I've got 24 board feet in that one inch high row. And if I have, you know, 12 rows, well, if there's 24 board feet and then 12 rows, what's 24 times 12? 240, 268, 200 and 288. I don't know. I could be wrong on the math. Yeah. 288 board feet because we're essentially breaking it down by row. We're, we're assessing the volume of that 36, essentially 36 inch wide board. It doesn't matter how many boards are in that row, but the entire row is 36 inches wide and they're eight foot long boards. So a six by eight board is four board feet. So 36 divided by six is four, four, or excuse me, 36 divided by six is six times four, 24, 24 board feet per course, per row. Multiply that by how many rows you have and there's your your total board footage. That's the type of thing that's being done. You can do the same thing with four inch wide boards or eight inch wide boards. You can very quickly come up with multipliers to figure that out. If you have a board foot rule, you can run the board foot roll across the entire pack and determine 
if I had a board on top of this 36 inch pack, if there was a single board that was 36 inches wide, this is how many board feet it would be. And very quickly you start to realize that a 24 inch wide pack is gonna be this many board feet when it's this high. A 36 inch wide board foot uh, is this many board feet. And you start thinking in terms of large volume of packs and estimating board foot very easily from that perspective. Okay, moving on. Aaron has a question about freezing. He says, how do hard freezes affect the milling process? I live in Canada where we get negative 35 C before the wind chill every winter and uh, Fahrenheit and Celsius meet at negative 40 for comparison. <laughs> yeah, that's cold. I know wood is a good insulator, but imagine some of the bound water in a log freezes when it's that cold. Is there a point where the log would need to be thawed before it's milled? And would the frozen bound water rupture cell walls and cell walls and cause issues for stability once it's milled? And for boards that are already milled and not stored in a somewhat controlled environment, does the freeze-thaw cycle affect the board or its workability any differently than changes in humidity for expansion and contraction? This is a great question. And I didn't know this right away. And I called some of the Canadian sawmills that we work with who experience these temperatures. And the answer, the easy answer to this is, does make a difference. In fact, many of them prefer to saw the logs when they are frozen. They find that it's cleaner. It works a lot easier. Um, it can be hard on some of the saw blades, but a lot of folks say that if they adjust their feed rate um, or they uh, let the, the, the um, yeah, really adjust the feed rate, the friction of the saw actually starts to thaw the log as it's sawing. But it's like one of those things where I made a banana bread the other day and I uh, had a piece of it when it was still warm and gooey and that was lovely. And then I took it and I put it in the refrigerator. Well, I went to get a piece the next night and it was quite cold. And what was a, a really gooey, mushy uh, banana bread sliced very, very cleanly. It was quite easy to slice. It was actually easier to eat because it was already quite a bit colder. Now I can imagine if I froze that, it would be the same type of thing. Um, I cut up a bunch of strawberries the other day and I froze them to make smoothies and I ended up cutting those strawberries once they were frozen and it was super easy to do it. Um, so a lot of the folks that I talked to said, actually, we prefer to saw them when they're frozen. As far as the freeze thaw cycle, it doesn't actually affect anything. Um, first of all, the free water, as it's frozen and it expands, it just kind of pushes out the end, pushes out the pores. Well, the same thing kind of happens with the bound water. The cell walls are surprisingly flexible. And as that water freezes, yes, it's within the cell walls. And as it freezes, expands, but then so does the cellulose. It's actually quite pliable. The same thing that allows boards to expand and contract as they take on more water and moisture is the same thing that allows them to expand and contract as water expands as it freezes. So there's really no instances of rupture cell walls due to that. Um, and honestly, as he said at the beginning, wood is a pretty good insulator. Well, so is actually water. Um, uh, in fact, with the specific heat of water being so high, you find that the water itself insulates, which means it doesn't freeze super, super fast. Now, negative 35 is pretty dang cold. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, it's rare that it goes from 35 to negative 35 in a matter of minutes. You know, um, it's like that, uh, what's his name? Dennis Quaid movie where the snowball earth thing, uh, <laughs> where everything like the, the, the hole in the atmosphere opened up and it just dumped cold, like a negative 128 or something like that in seconds that doesn't happen. So there is time as that freeze is coming on. And even overnight, if that temperature say drops from 20 down to negative 35, the insulating element of water allows that freeze thaw cycle to kind of slowly creep in. So the cell walls can expand a little bit slower and you don't really end up with a rupture. Likewise, the opposite happens when you heat it too fast and you end up pulling out too much moisture, which ends up kind of supporting the cell fibers before they get a chance to bake and harden. That's when you get cell wall collapse. So yeah, it was interesting to talk to some of these guys. In fact, th that when most of them, a large majority said, yeah, it doesn't bother me, but in fact, I prefer to saw it when it's frozen. 
So there you go. And actually, if, if you Google some of this, that was the first thing I did and talked to like Woodmiser um, owner forums. There's a lot of folks that have like, well, I found that this feed rate works or my blade, changing my blade or changing the geometry of my blade to add a little bit more uh, gullet into it. Very much like I'd be sawing green wood. If I were sawing green wood by hand, I'd want a heavier gullet and a slightly wider set to allow for that spongier material, same type of thing, you can alter your tooth geometry of your bandsaw blades in order to compensate for a frozen log. But yeah, most of the guys said, nope, much prefer it that way. Our last question is from Alex, who asks, um, you've mentioned in a past episode that a bundle of boards as a group can make grade, but individual boards from the group may not make the grade. If there are more below-grade boards than can fit in a bundle, what is generally done with them? Are they held for the next bundle in case of there is a spot? Are they sold for firewood? Are they sold to flooring suppliers? Are they cut again to remove defects uh, if the board is valuable enough? Answer is yes. <laughs> um, so what Alex is talking about is if you've got a pack of FAS lumber, there's a good chance that a certain percentage of that lumber is not FAS. As far as how much of it, there's really no rule of thumb. Certainly there's some variance based upon species and in what grading rules you're using. So for example, um, red oak, uh, red oak is a particularly clear tree. So its grading rules are a little bit more strict. It requires more, more of the tree to be clear to be FAS for red oak. Walnut on the other hand is a gnarly knotty tree and its grading rules are much more lenient. But sometimes people want really, 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 really good superior grade walnut. So you take your walnut and you grade it using red oak rules, meaning this has gotta be really clear. This is truly exceptional walnut because it's not FAS walnut. It's red oak rules FAS walnut. That is 100% clear stuff that like practically doesn't exist. So you're buying it from a sawyer who has sawn to the grade, to meet that grade. And that Sawyer is going to have an allowable, we'll just say for this um, situation, 10% of what you bought is allowed to be below grade. Now, if you've gone to them and you said, look, you know, I got the 10% last time, that was kind of pushing it. I was really hoping I could get a higher grade. And the guy says, well, you know, based on the trees that I'm seeing, I don't know that I can guarantee, you know, 5% below grade. But what I can do is reduce the overall cost in order to compensate. If the 10% was unacceptable to you at this price per board foot, we negotiate a lower price and the 10% stays. Or maybe it goes even lower than that and 20% is allowable below grade, but the price is reflecting upon that. And some of that is dependent by what that Sawyer knows he can get from his logs and go back a couple questions, what he knows is in his near inventory, which he knows from the guy he bought the trees from, or maybe he grew the trees himself. So certain mills can produce a higher percentage of grade than other mills based upon so many of the factors we've already talked about. And the relationships you form with various sawmills you're buying from is in large part based upon this type of thing. I really, my customers won't tolerate below FAS grade, so it does me no good to buy from a guy that's gonna give me 10% below grade because I can't do anything with that 10%. I have no customers for number one common. All my customers want FAS. So you go to that guy and say, look, I, I'm sorry, I can't accept 10% below. So the guy says, okay, I can give you 100% FAS. It's just gonna take me three months longer to do it. And I'm gonna have to charge you X more per board foot. Okay, you agree on the deal, you're good to go. After over a while, you come to count on that mill. This guy generally produces 100% FAS. And I count on him to do that. And he knows that's what I expect. He knows that's what he produces. Occasionally, I end up with 1% that's here or there. You kind of overlook that. You let that go because he generally is consistent. It's good business practice. And this is what any supplier, I don't know what you're buying, whether you're buying software or tomatoes, if you buy from a guy that creates crappy tomatoes, you don't buy from them again. Or maybe you give them another chance, you go back and say, hey, that last bunch was a bunch of crappy tomatoes. I want better tomatoes this time. And the next time you get good tomatoes, you're like, okay, I'll give them a third shot. And the second time you get bad tomatoes, you don't use that guy again. And that guy goes out of business eventually. So all of this is negotiated in the buying side of things and it determines how much of that pack may be less than great. The other thing that happens is wood ages. Wood can develop defects. Wood can develop defects as it comes out of the kiln and you expect a certain amount of waste. What will happen over time is boards will get picked over. 
and you end up with boards. This is really on the retail side of things where people are buying one or two boards at a time and you're picking out those prettiest boards. Um, and sometimes like in the case of cherry, well, in the case of most, um, NHLA graded wood, sapwood is not a defect, but cherry people find cherry sapwood particularly offensive for some reason. And all the like mostly heart boards get picked over and what you're left with are boards that are still technically FAS, but they have a lot of sap and you can't really sell them at FAS prices. I mean, technically you can because they're still FAS grade, but the fact of the matter is, is no one is buying them. So what happens is you find a better way to sell them. So, and Alex brought it up. Maybe they're sold to flooring suppliers who only need number two common one face material. Sometimes they're sold for firewood. Sometimes you're taking a loss and you're mulching themselves and powering your kiln with them. Um, there, it's just a matter of finding what is left over, what is not meeting the grade, and finding what market will tolerate that, what market is actually interested in that. In the end, what most people do is they just don't want to buy it in the first place, and they're trying to negotiate the highest grade, highest percentage of grade as possible. Who's left with the below grade stuff it tends to be the sawmills, and those sawmills are then finding other uses for it, other markets like pallets, like mulch, etc. So there's a number of things that can happen for it. Sometimes it's sold and compressed into pellets for wood stoves. There's all kinds of things that wood can be sold for. It's just a matter of, are you taking a loss by selling it that way and trying to mitigate that as much as possible up the supply chain or from, you know, by buying the right logs from the right guy, by growing your forest the right way, etc. It's it is all interconnected butterfly effect that affects all that fun stuff. But also knowing this, and if you are tolerant of number two common, you can go to a sawmill and say, hey, where's your defects? Like, where's the stuff that doesn't meet the grade? Where are you keeping it? And sometimes it is being bundled into a pack, you know, and then you develop a full pack, say 500 or 1,000 board feet is what you're shooting for in your packs of lumber. You develop a full pack of number two common cherry, then maybe you can go and buy the whole pack if, if you can accept that. Or maybe certain lumber yards will let you go pick through that pack and pull out what you need. Cutting it in order to remove defects will reduce the grade because the NHLA lumber is a cutting grade and not an appearance grade. So it's meeting grade not only on percentage of defects, but mostly on how big of a board. It must meet a six to eight, six inch wide by eight foot long board that's 83.3% clear in order to be FAS. If it can't meet that six by eight, it then must meet a four by six foot board, four inch by six foot board um, that meets that grade, but the entire board must still be at least six by eight feet long. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of little cutting grades that denote what works. So if you took, you know, uh, cut a board right out of the middle of an eight foot board and you suddenly have two four foot boards, the only grade those boards can make is common. Um, four foot long, I think it would be number two common at that point. Um, and that's only if a three inch wide segment can be 66% clear of defect. Then it will meet number one common, or excuse me, number two, 33% for number two common because it's only four foot long, 66% for number one common. You can tell I don't deal in common lumber a lot. Um, so all of these things are affected by the size of the board, but maybe you have specifically set aside a retail part of your establishment where you're selling not by the board foot, but by the piece. And you can cut out that knot and end up with two four foot perfectly clear pieces of cherry. And you can put a price on that board, not a board foot price, but this board costs $8. This board costs $12. This board costs $24. And you can sell your lumber that way. And that's another way to move it where trimming away those defects can be beneficial. Whew. That was a lot of questions, guys. Um, Thank you. Really, really cool questions that all kind of relate to this journey from tree to a board. So, you know, always, always, always want to hear your questions. Please send in more questions. If you go to lumberupdate.com, there's a form that you can fill out to submit your questions, or you can just email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com or go to Instagram, lumberupdateshow, and you can direct message me or leave a comment in any of my posts. Or you know what? If you really want to get your question answered on the show, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash lumber update, sponsor the show, ask a question. It's going right to the front of the line, folks, because membership has its privileges. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Go buy some lumber. <laughs>